idea for all this really came from a dream? Yes, it did. Good evening and welcome to Nox Mente, our hundredth episode. Yay! Tonight's guest is Sam Shadow. Sam is an experimental modern day occultist. He's 28 years old and lives in Jacksonville, Florida. His interest began with Thelema and theistic Satanism. Later, he expanded into new directions such as radionics, esoteric voodoo, Satian magic, Typhonian magic, and demonology. Sam is also an independent musician and paints portraits of various deities. Sam, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. I have been looking forward to this, Sam. And, and everyone in our combined circles, everyone knows who you are. So for the people out there, get into it that don't know who Sam is. Get into it. Uh, Sam is a wealth of knowledge. It's amazing at such a young age. And as I always say, if anyone follows me on Twitter and sees how I treat Sam in public, <laughs> you will all know how much, how beautiful I think Sam is. If you have not seen him in trans delight, you are missing out. Unbelievable androgynous soul. You're just an unbelievable androgynous soul. And that's the highest form of magic, Sam. Welcome. For me, that's the highest form of a compliment. So thank you. Wow, I think I need, I think at this point I might need an extra layer of foundation because I'm turning red. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, a, it's a good thing we focus on the words here. Um, all right, let's get, let's just jump into this and get, let's start off running. And may Mercury bless us. And I'm so thrilled. I just want to say this to him thrilled you're a Halloween baby. Oh, thank you. <laughs> no, I love Halloween. Yeah, it was, I mean, the timing's unbelievable. So, all right, tell us about Young Sam, the earliest stuff you can recall. And, you know, I'm always looking for the stuff that really sticks out. So this can be the bad stuff too, but pop culture, stuff that was influencing as far back as you can recall. And tying this in, did you have a relationship with nature? That's a big, big question Ooh. there. Okay. Um, well, I'll I'll try and keep uh, I'll try and keep my description still relative to our show. And it's funny you mention that um, because I almost wish, almost covertly wish I could uh, secretly audio record a conversation with my mother about this. Because when I was a little kid, like a really little kid, three, four, five years old. I wasn't into most things that average little kids were into. I loved snakes and spiders and skeletons. And like, I don't know, for me, it didn't even register that um, Halloween was just like sort of a once a year holiday for fun. I just saw a lot of these things. And, uh, you know, I loved those things year round for whatever reason I was drawn to it. And another weird little thing, I was such a strange kid, that I loved at that age was uh, squids and octopuses. And uh, I feel like my mother would completely, uh, you know, say all these things are true. You know, she knows what a weird little kid I was. But I look back at that. It's octopi. I, octopi. There we go. Sorry for my poor English. But I, I look over 20 years into the future, and I think of myself, you know, as an occultist, and I think of working with the Gede and Voodoo with Baron Samedi, and I think of H.P. Lovecraft and Cthulhu, and I think of Set Typhon and the Typhonian Current of Magic, and I think to myself, wow, you know, it's no wonder that 
you know, being drawn to these archetypes as such a little kid uh, might have had some kind of deep influence on me as a uh, as an adult. And uh, I think I was always drawn to nature. I, I live in Florida. I live in North Florida, right on the outskirts of Jacksonville. And I'm right outside of the Duval city limit. So I'm kind of in the woods. I'm just far enough from the city to where I'm not really, you know, in a metropolitan area. I'm still kind of in the sticks. And, uh, you know, growing up, I mean, really, I didn't have a lot of friends. And all I'm surrounded by is green trees, green trees, green trees. So having an active imagination and being in this environment, I obviously spent a lot of time in the forest. And, uh, you know, today as an adult, that's um, it's still something I love to do, both for magical and mundane reasons. I, I love kayaking. I love hiking. I love swimming. Uh, but I also, you know, I, I bury a lot of ritual work a lot of sigils in the forest and um, sometimes I'll use different elements within nature as a, a place to evoke a spirit or commune with a spirit perhaps. Oops, I was mic'd. I was muted. So with with stuff like say movies and that kind of stuff, though already we know and it was no surprise with the genres. Did anything in particular actually scare the hell out of you? When I was a little kid or just like in general? When you were little. When I was little, what scared the hell out of me when I was little? You know what? I think the only thing that oddly enough really scared me when I was little, like, was Chucky. And I don't know why he scared me so bad, but I remember, you know, just I, I wasn't afraid of any of the rest of that stuff, even things that were way worse like Hellraiser, you know, didn't bother me. But for whatever reason, Chucky really bothered me. And I remember like being about 10 or 11 years old and they were going to have the Child's Play Marathon on AMC. And I thought, you know what? Fuck it, I'm going to face my fear. I'm going to watch these movies. <laughs> and I watched them and they were hilarious. They were so funny. Like he was, he, he's as funny as Freddy Krueger with his little one-liners and stuff. So uh, yeah, that. but he was really the only one that really scared me when I was a kid was Chucky. Interesting. And it's a, you know, he's such a, I'm a, I'm a collector of antique dolls and I like them early, early wax dolls and all this. And I just have always found him appalling. Sam, have you ever <laughs> seen uh, the original trilogy of terror with Karen Black? Oh yeah. Ooh, with the, that yeah, was our Chucky. When we that were was kids. a freaky little doll too. That yeah. teak doll yeah. with the shark. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Now that was scary. Yeah. And it was what is so great about the great Karen Black, too, is that mix of androgynous beauty with the terror with her. I always loved her so much. Oh, she's beautiful. It's a shame she passed away a few years ago. I, uh, you know, I, I saw her in those uh, movies like The Devil's Rejects, and I didn't realize that when she was in that, she was probably pushing 80 or late 70s and I thought oh my god I hope when I'm her age I'm that beautiful because wow <laughs> she yeah she is beautiful all along but she had a, an exotic beauty to her she yeah. was not common looking at all so okay so back here early early days were there things that stick out that you know we hear more typical with kids being afraid of the dark or something under the bed those kinds of night terror-y situations hmm you know i nothing like that ever really happened to me but i did have one 
weird experience at a friend's house when I was in the third grade that like, this was probably the first paranormal type of experience I ever had in my life. And it's a story I really don't tell people, but, uh, but because we're on this subject, I'll tell you guys. Uh, so I, I was in the third grade and I was staying the night at my friend's house and, um, he kind of lived way out in the woods and his dad was already kind of messing with me. He was like, Oh, well, there's a wolf out there and he's going to get you. He's going to get you. And I thought, okay, whatever, you know, he's messing with me. And, uh, you know, it's a normal sleepover. And I went to bed and I woke up one night, I went to use the bathroom and I'm in the bathroom and, um, I look in the mirror and in the reflection behind me, I see this little boy that kind of looks like Damien out of the omen for lack of a better you know, explanation. And I see it, you know, in the reflection behind me, I turn around, there's nothing there. I think that's, you know, it's my imagination. I turn back around and within a matter of seconds, I see his reflection again. He's holding a baseball bat bent back like this and he whacks me over the head and I fall down and I black out and I wake up and I don't know if it's been like five minutes or an hour or whatever. I remember sitting up and touching the back of my head and feeling a knot and then running out of that bathroom, screaming, screaming at the top of my lungs. And uh, my friend's mom took me home and she thought I was just like I had a nightmare or whatever. You know, nobody was buying my story because the dad had been fucking with me all night and stuff. And, you know, she brought me home and I went and I woke up my parents. And I told them exactly what happened to me and they were laughing. They're like, oh, that's just a dream. That's, that's not real. And I took my mom's hand and I put it on the back of my head where I had that knot and my parents just kind of paused and looked at each other and they never said anything else about it. They just said it was a dream. It wasn't real. Go back to sleep. And it was <laughs> never talked about again. <laughs> Cue the Rosemary's babies. music. <laughs> this is not a dream. This is really happening. Exactly. Did you along the line, have you come to any conclusions with that experience? I think that there was some kind of spirit in his house that obviously preyed on things that were weaker than it was. I think it obviously liked children, and that's why it took the form of a child. It could have been anything. Maybe it was the spirit of somebody who died. Maybe it was some sort of lower-level uh, demonic being, perhaps. It was a demon. I don't know what it was. My vote's <laughs> demon. Everything is demons. <laughs> I like demons too, so I'm gonna. I'll vote for that. It it probably was a demon. <laughs> demons for president. So, what about this? So, in this early period, your relationship with dreams and dreaming. Oh well, you know I did have. I I can't really recall any dreams from when I was a kid though, but I do remember having a lot of active dreams. You know, being a very active dreamer. Uh, some of the most early dreams that I can recall probably are either my late teenage years or early adult years. And I think those were the ones where they really, really started to make an impact on my life um, from then on out. And so you do recall at least having dreams and they were present in your life though early on. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, it's weird. Like the ones I remember from when I was a kid aren't scary or even that deep at all. Like a lot of the dreams I remember having are kind of funny now. I remember having this one weird dream where 
I was being chased by a T-Rex through the woods and it was going meow, 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 commercial, the commercial, yeah. Don't get us a copyright strike, but it's just hilarious. Sam, you muted yourself. I'm sorry. Give me one second. Okay, I'm sorry about that. I was having a computer problem. Oh, I thought you I thought it was an accident. Anyway, yeah. so so the T-Rex one's fun though. It it's clearly, you know, obviously partly from that, you know, mixed commercial and and then the dinosaur, which is interesting. But there we are. There's an early one. Yeah, I I, I don't have much of a memory of really early dreams. Like I really don't. Um God, I'm trying so hard to remember anything, like any dream period from childhood, and I just can't do it. Like a lot no, of the- it's all right, it's all right. We, they come. I just want to get that. We're just building the foundation here. Yeah. So, what about religion in your household as you were very young and growing up? Um, well, I was I was raised in a Catholic household. Uh, yeah, we went to church. I mean, I went to Sunday school when I was a kid. Um, I think by the time I was like 12 or 13 years old, like I had really been fed up with the indoctrination of a uh, <laughs> Hebrew slave god. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, started to rebel against that Anji a little bit. But um, How old were you when that started in? Like 12, 13. You probably but just said that. that but at, you... at that point, I think I was like, like it's not like I went into occultism or anything at that point. That wasn't until I was almost uh, 23 years old. At, at, then I think I was just a very angry kid, and uh, I I realized what I was being told was a lie. And because of my limited perception at the world at the time, I just figured since they're pushing this down my throat and this is a lie, then all religion must be a lie. And of course, mm-hmm. when I got older, I, I realized that wasn't true. But uh, yeah, I'm definitely not a Christian. I'm definitely not Catholic. <laughs> yeah, but it's, you know, 12 or 13 is a classic time to question reality. It's pretty common. I love that. I love how auspicious it was, that, you know, that you were 23 when you started to push into the occult, though. That's, that is, you know. <laughs> that is really unique, isn't it? Not, you know, but it really isn't. But it, it is perfect. It's absolutely perfectly synced. So, all right, back to back to just building this foundation. In so in puberty, I can't recall if you said earlier, but that it was a little bit later. You start remembering your dreams. Do you think that was in the puberty range? No, I'd already hit puberty before that. Like, I I think by the time I was like twelve or thirteen, I was already like, you know, maturing. I had a libido. Hair was growing in funny places, that kind of thing. So, oh my! <laughs> no, I, I was a little bit older than that. I I was probably like, like a lot of the ones that I tried to re- recall. Um, you know, that really started to make impacts. Um, were probably around the age of maybe seventeen or eighteen, okay. or even eighteen, nineteen. Uh, I don't think I don't know if it had to do with my age or not. I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not, I don't know why it came at that period of my life. I didn't even practice magic at the time, but looking back, I had a lot of, uh, you know, I guess you could say magical dream experiences that started there before I ever even began practicing. 
Do you have any of those examples for us? Oh, of course. Um, I've had, oh God. Well, I don't even know where to begin. Do you want to hear about some of my UFO dreams? Yeah, take us where you want. I want, you know, of course, I want to let a good green dream content and then the meat of this whole podcast is about consciousness in the end so we're gonna chew the fodder excellent (laughs) i can't wait to see you pick my brain it's gonna be interesting i'm already in there baby (laughs) (laughs) it's a good thing anybody can't see me turning red as a cherry right now (laughs) sam and i have a rapport so if it it shows i love i'm grabbing screenshots so don't worry i'll have i'll post them in the show notes I love my Sam so much. All right, so take us down with some of these these amazing dreams that you have. Well, one that really stuck out to me when I was probably 18 or 19 was, okay, I remember every, okay, so every year where I live, there's a Christmas parade that goes down uh, Main Street, and it's actually within walking distance of my house, and um I remember in this dream, it was like winter time, and it's a hyper-realistic dream. Uh, I'm standing with my mom and my dad, and we're watching this Christmas parade. And about 60 to 90 yards away, near where the courthouse is, in the middle of this parade, all of a sudden this flying saucer comes out, and it just stops, and is sort of levitating in midair. And the whole parade stops, and everybody's looking at like, what the hell is this? And this purple beam goes directly down from the saucer. It hits the ground and expands outward. And when it's expanding, everybody starts running away and screaming. And I remember looking down at my hand because I've heard if you ever think you're having a dream, look at your hands. And um, that's a trick. But I, I remember looking down at my hand as this energy is like just sort of blowing past my whole body and my hand starts disintegrating almost like sand in the wind. It's just blowing away into billions of little particles. And um, that scared the shit out of me. I I woke up and, uh, you know, I've I've never really had dreams about aliens per se, but I've had, um, unless you count the great old ones, but I've I've had a lot of dreams about just UFOs, uh, things like that. Um, I won't go, I guess, into any of those other ones because they were when I was much older. But when I was 18, 19, I also had a lot of dreams about, I've never had a dream about Cthulhu or Yogg-Sothoth or any specific Lovecraftian deity. Yet. But I had, uh, yet, (laughs) oh, wait, maybe I have, but I'll get to that. It it was when I was older. I'll get to that later. Uh, I did have a lot of dreams about things, I guess you could say, are definitely in that realm of uh, experience. I had this one dream, um, just really lots of dreams in general in that age, and I didn't even practice magic. I did like H.P. Lovecraft, but um, dreams about the ocean and these really weird-looking prehistoric fish, like anglerfish and goblin sharks and like sort of like the long-necked dinosaurs you'll see in movies and stuff, like with sharp teeth, except they were, you know... They look different in the dream. They were more like pink and black. And um, but some something I think that really hits on a deeper, primal, almost alien archetypal level. Um, one that really stood out that was really Lovecraftian was a uh, I had a dream that I was in a hotel by the beach, and um I'm several stories up in the air, and it's raining, it's storming like a tropical storm came through, and I'm staring out at the beach from my hotel window. 
and uh, there's a lighthouse in the ocean, you know, the tide's really crazy. And I see this big shark swimming through the ocean. I can kind of see his silhouette in the shape of him, like a big, great white. And all of a sudden, I see this yellow tentacle come out, and it grabs the shark and wraps around him. And this thing comes out and wraps around the white, or wraps around the lighthouse holding the shark. And it's like this yellow, it, it's hard to explain because it was almost like seeing something on LSD. It's constantly shifting and changing. It never really sh stayed the same, but it's like eyes and tentacles and just teeth. And it was yellow and it never really stayed consistent. It constantly shift in appearance and it's eating this shark latched onto the lighthouse and I'm bearing witness to this whole Lovecraftian horror <laughs> from my hotel window. Uh, okay, so this is interesting. Fast forward to last year in 2018. Uh, I found out, okay, so around the time of my 27th birthday, I had this dream where I didn't see Yog sothoth in the dream, but I remember having some kind of dream about him. And in real life, I was saying as I slept, Yog sothoth Yog sothoth Yog sothoth Yog sothoth And the sound of my own voice is what woke me up. Like I heard myself saying that, and it scared me, and I woke up. And uh, come to find out, there's a, um, a pylon from the Temple of Set that was doing a ritual for Yog Sothoth, oddly enough, whether you want to say it's connected or completely unconnected, on June 18th, that year, 2018, which is my birthday. And uh, <laughs> I thought that was very fascinating. That's completely significant. And anyone that's listening, and a lot of the people that do listen, follow these kinds of synchronicities and numbers. And I find this ex really remarkable with the synchronicity of your birthday, the timing of it. Uh, it's it's remarkable. Of course, I have a lot to say, but I never do really. Uh, well, voice I, it. I'd love to hear it. Well, I, you know, I can go into that with you private, privately, okay. but it's fantastic, and I, I I really appreciate the timing of all that, and it adds to this layer that we. That there's more going on here, right? Absolutely. This, the surface is just so shallow. <laughs> the surface in which we we call life. So in this 18 and 19, you, you know, from 17 to 19 period, and when you're the occult's starting to court you via the dream realm right through these images and this ocean stuff i i perennially ask about ocean stuff you just gave me fantastic material some people have none by the way it's like it, you know you never know uh, so that's extra juicy and what i wanted to ask in line with that is there anything you remember because i can't remember right now when you were at like 18 i think you said when you're having that what was going on politically was there anything interesting going on in the outer world when you had that dream you know i think uh that was an interesting time in my life because i look back at that and i think for that very young age i put 
way too much responsibility at myself at that time. Um, what I mean by that is, um, you know, I had just graduated high school. I had just turned 18 and I had a job and I was going to college and in my head, like I was an adult, like, and I was in a very negative relationship at the time with somebody who had a kid with somebody else. And I was trying to like almost be a stepfather to this kid that's not even mine. And this person is constantly lying to me, abusing me, cheating on me. And uh, I think that in retrospect, I put all of this pressure on myself thinking, oh, I'm an adult, you know, I can do this, that, blah, blah, blah. But really, I was so young and so green behind the ears and uh, ill-prepared from for the world. And I wonder if that has anything to do subconsciously with why I had so much unrest, so much uh, emotional turbulence. It was a very negative um, period of my life where I thought I was trying to do the right thing. And I look back and I realize, wow, you know, if I was smarter... I would have just probably been doing what I'm doing now, which is just living my life for me and doing whatever I want, whenever I want, and uh, staying true to myself. Yeah, but I mean, this is how we get to that perspective uh, through these lessons, as you know, and especially as you know, as sorry, I had to hit a dog. Uh, <laughs> it, it was not really hit. Oh, uh, but it was. She's digging on an antique. So uh, it's it's these kinds of experiences that do bring us the insight we need. And it's charming that you at that age were ready to step up and play stepdad. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> can like you imagine? <laughs> it's so cute. I was more responsible at 18 than some 30-year-olds. Yeah. Well, it says everything about your character and... You know, it's one of these reasons why you're you're so wonderful is because this is that kind of character in which you put forward and seem to possess. Thank so you. in the I think at this period, let's just get your the landscape, the way you deal with the dream architecture out of the way. How do you experience dream? And so I'm looking for all that tactile stuff. The, are you able to read script? Is it color? Is you know, smell? Yeah, how is the dreamscape for you? I would say all of the above, um, but different ones usually have more one or the other pertaining to it, sort of, if that makes sense. Um, and that's weird you mentioned that, because I've heard a lot of people can't read things in dreams, but I always have been able to, and I don't know why. Uh, okay, so I had one dream earlier this year uh, where... Oh, man, I can think of two where I read things. I'll, I'll give you the shorter one first. And uh, if you want, I can go into a much deeper one. Give us the one you find juiciest. We have time, Sam. I'll, I'll give the shorter one first than the juicier one. So the shorter one, I was, it was almost like it was the 1800s. And I was in this old sort of seaside town uh, with a lot of wooden buildings and docks and stuff. And I'm in this boarding school, and the school lets out, and I walk out of the schoolhouse, and it's all gray and raining. And across from the schoolhouse is this um, old bookstore, and I go in, and uh, I'm looking around. I notice they have a lot of uh, occult books in this one specific section upstairs. And I go upstairs, and I'm looking, 
and I see this big black book about the size of a phone book with gold lettering on the side, and it says Pimonius. And I'm thinking of King Paimon immediately. Yes, yes. Uh, I'm thinking that there is something in this book that uh, some type of knowledge of King Paimon that uh, he's either saying, I, I didn't read the book in that dream, but he's either saying, you know, come embrace this knowledge or come open this knowledge or I have something for you. I have something you need to learn. Uh, but I took that as an omen in my own magical practice because I'm very fond of King Paimon. Uh, when, oops, sorry. So let's pause here for a second. Where okay. You said this one was more recent? Yeah. Oh, yeah. This was earlier this year. Did you, were you already wearing the sigil of Paimon? Because I know you have it on a lot. Oh, not yet. Um, I had actually just got that about two, three months ago. But uh, yeah, that that hadn't I hadn't gotten it yet. But I I knew who he was and I liked him and I you know. Okay, so him. it was almost like a courting in a weird way. Like this is uh, we're gonna communicate here. I mean, the symbol, the right. book is so classic. All right, give us a new one. That one is. These dreams are great, Sam. Thanks. Here's another one I had about last summer that, um, oh man, I can't go into all the details without, you know, completely making my life transparent. But this, uh, the reason I'm mentioning it is because uh, we talked about being able to read in dreams, and um, this one really stood out to me. Uh, so I had this dream that I was in high school and I'm in this teacher's class, and he wasn't even a teacher I had in real life, but I'm in this teacher's class, and I guess they're having a book fair, and all it was was like a little bookshelf with these books you could buy at the front of the class. I'm looking through them, and I see this book called The Gospel of Set, and it has a picture of Set on the cover, and I open it up, and it says $10.00. And I said, you know what, I want this. And I paid the man $10 and I'm taking it back to my, uh, to my desk and I'm reading it. And I remember opening a page and I couldn't read the whole thing because I, could, I remember being able to read the words, but not all of them would make sense in a, in a uh, sentence structure. But one little part stood out to me and um, it was uh, the name Shugal Karanzan, which is a name that. Uh, Kenneth Grant uses for Karanzan in some of his books, and uh, which I found to be very interesting because Karanzan 333 and uh, Set obviously being, you know, a very Saturnian kind of figure, I thought there was a little bit of a connection there. Have you but it was, seen any of the Thomas Sheridan stuff on C3, C333? No, no, I haven't. He thinks it is uh, possessing the internet, for lack of a better term. <laughs> Let's open up that portal to Doth. Oh, I think it's open. <laughs> it, uh, and, and that's a rabbit hole for you to go down. It's juicy. Anyway, it's not to sidetrack you, sorry. Oh, no, no, it's fine. But th it gets even more intense. So that's, that's the tame part of it. So I get this book and I open it up and I'm trying to read it, right? I'm trying to make sense. And yeah, I'm in a classroom, high school setting, right? And... This African-American boy, probably about 17 years old, comes in and he's wearing full drag and he's other he's also wearing other fetish related items completely unrelated to drag and is behaving in various mannerisms that 
I recognize within myself. And um, he walks up to me and he's like looking at my book and he's like, oh, well, what's this? What's this? I said, oh, this is a book I just bought, blah, blah, blah. And I didn't really pay much at uh, attention to him at the time. I'm trying to ignore him and, you know, read my book. And he says, oh, well, what's that? Like distract me. And I turn my head and he reaches into my book and rips a big page out of my book. And I got mad. I'm like, I just paid for this book. Give me my pages out of my fucking book back, right? And I turn around to, to look at the book. And another kid, a white kid with glasses, has a pair of scissors. And he's cutting up the remaining pages of the book and rearranging them into something else. And at that point, I kind of lost my temper. I wasn't thinking. And I threw my hands in the air. I said, fine, you want my fucking book? You can have it. And I stormed out of the classroom and, you know, I woke up shortly after that. But it was after I woke up that I looked back in retrospect and realized, like, how shook I was by that dream. Because set being isolate self-consciousness, you know, set being the self, I realized that this young African-American boy was actually, perhaps you could say, my shadow self. Or he was a very deep aspect of my own psyche that perhaps I have repressed or ignored because society has judged me or tried to make me feel ashamed for acting or behaving a certain way. And that was sort of a wake up call to say, you know what, maybe I should just say fuck everybody and be who I am, embrace that which I am, because that's really the ultimate key to happiness. And that is the gift of set or the gift of Satan. And the white boy with the glasses, um, that was very fascinating because this was right at a time that with Davy and Baz and Saroth, we were exploring a lot of the works of William S. Burroughs and uh, Brian Geisen. And I got the impression that this young man was doing something with the cut-up method to rearrange reality, that he was doing something to alter either the course of my reality or reality in general, perhaps. But after I woke up, I had this obsession with this astral book, The Gospel of Set. I even Googled it, and I couldn't find, you know, obviously it wasn't a real book. And I kept thinking, you know, what is it set? is trying to tell me in this dream, you know, can I tap back into it? And um, I even made a uh, an offering. I made a Setian dollar, kind of like hell money, except it was money for set. And I consecrated it, and uh, I kept it under my pillow for about a month before I burned it. But uh, I never really was able to tap back into that gnosis to where I got at that point, but I did learn something from that dream, and I think I gained a little bit of uh, introspect that was deeply needed. Yeah, I love your, this is this is why chatting with you is such a treat. As I said earlier when we came on, your depth of knowledge is, is, is breathtaking for your age especially, and- uh, Thank this, you, I appreciate that. Well, it's clear you've done the work, and you do the work, and continue to do the work, and so it shows and it shines. One of the things with this self-analysis of this particular dream that is uh, fascinating, too, is, and I had written it down here, was the cut-up aspect. And we both understand magically where that is rooted and how that can play out and how rewarding it is in the end. And I, I couldn't help but think, perhaps, although you did do it with like a hell note situation to set. Right. Uh, 
that that the the image I got was this is a different level of communication clearly and it's going to and cut up nature and then we're talking in the dreamscape which is just our state of lucidness if we're really awake there uh, that there is an aspect of finding a new different way to communicate with him or with it you know however you want to view view oh, that uh so that that came through pretty clear and it's it's as an observer i don't really do dream interpretations on on air like this but there was i think there's something more to explore within the avenue within that particular avenue of getting a clear channel of communication because y you were you know you were touched with the shining there I think so. I think, well, Set's been a deity that's been very dear to me since I first started practicing magic at all. And um, to really, you know, have that type of gnosis with him, I think that's really what uh, the Setian experience or the Satanic experience is really all about. I think that, uh, you know, and I don't want to get too far off subject because I want to keep it in the realm of dreams, but, you know, even in waking life, I think what I gain from that gnosis um, is just a deeper in, uh, introspect of me, perhaps. And I mean, sometimes it boosts my confidence. Like I think, hell yeah, I'm the shit. You know, it makes me super self-aware of all my strengths. But at the flip side of that, it also makes me hyper aware of all my flaws and the things I need to improve on and those kinds of things as well. Yeah. Oh, it's always the razor's edge. We're always, oh, sure. we're always on that. And uh, we do, we meander here in the show, Sam. So meanders <laughs> are welcome. The whole thing, everything in the end is about states of consciousness, whether people want to see that or not, all of it. This, your waking life, your daydreams, your memories, the thing and experience you call dreaming, this is all consciousness. And it's all in the realm of Nox Mente if we're open. Mm -hmm. That's I love the way you worded that. I'm I'm sure you guys have heard this before, but I mean a lot of shamanistic cultures like uh the Native Americans and uh the Chinese, various others, I mean to them a dream was equally as valid as waking reality. They just saw that as reality or an alternate reality, perhaps. There's yes. a Carlos Castaneda reference for you. <laughs> oh yeah, and uh, what a genius he was. Uh so let's let's get back into this give us some more because i know you spent some time and dug up a lot of dream images for us so bring us more and i'm very much into hearing about this magical side since we have you on the on the seat here so we clear you are able to read in dreams not everyone is as as was stated earlier and it's a wonderful thing do you come into the experience of dreaming with any any uh like smell touch these kinds of things sometimes um and sometimes even other sensations too uh you know i've i have had dreams where i can't think of any one specific thing but things like maybe a dream where i'm in a beautiful mountain range and i can smell the pine trees i can smell 
the soil and the, the clean air. I can almost feel that. Or even dreams where maybe something crazy happens. I get shot with a gun or something and I can feel that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had, <laughs> this was another dream I had. Um, if, you, if you're talking about just occult, otherworldly sensations, like uh, almost sort of a, um, an empath sort of feeling, if you will. Uh, I had a dream earlier this year that I went to hell. <laughs> and it wasn't scary, but this is why I mentioned it now. Um, I had this dream, I went to hell, and it was almost like a black light poster. Everything was orange and yellow, like a bright neon orange and yellow. And it was kind of stereotypical, which you would imagine, like fire and rocks and shit. But when I had this dream that felt very short-lived, I felt this strong physical sensation when I woke up on the top of my head that felt like an electric shock. It felt like somebody, it felt like I grabbed hold of an electric fence or something, but it was only on top of my head. And I felt my jaws clench up too, like, I, and that's when I woke up, but I thought, Oh wow. That, uh, I've had that kind of sensation doing an evocation before. I wonder what that was about. That's fascinating. And I, you know, that as you know, and other people that understand this language too, the whole crown chakra area up there by the pineal gland, all this, this whole area is so significant in the process of decoding what we're this soup we're in. And so that's, that's, that's fascinating. And I love that it was the hell imagery. (laughs) (laughs) i don't know why i had that specific dream there were no dream there was no entities in the dream it was just the setting you know (laughs) yeah well you know i mean it's such a facade (laughs) and it wasn't scary it didn't feel scary when i was there i was like yeah this feels a little stereotypical to be hell but (laughs) right get party city where's party city exactly Uh, That's hilarious. So also, so back here in the dreamscape, are there structures or places or things that you return to? So not necessarily reoccurring dreams, but uh, actual apparatus or architecture within the dream that's familiar. You know, it does oh, shift. Okay. But Yeah, for sure. Um, and it's, uh, it's interesting you mentioned that because uh, I I referenced Burroughs briefly earlier, Um, and if you've ever read Burroughs, he talks a lot about inner zone kind of being uh, the place that he would go to in his dreams, which you could say maybe inner zone is just his word or his definition for the dream world or a separate reality, maybe even uh, whether Carlos Castaneda called it the left-hand reality or, uh, you know, Kenneth Grant would call it the meon or uh, Clipoth, uh, perhaps. Um, for me personally, there is a place like that that I, I kind of go, which um, has two unique looks to it. It's always either a forest, like in a countryside with country houses spread out through a forest, and it's always nighttime, whether it's this setting or the other. The other one is almost like it kind of looks like the West Coast of the United States, but mixed with the forest as well. So it's kind of like 
Northern California mixed with a good balance of forest, which I guess that is now Northern California. It's got a good bit of woods, but uh, anyway, it's it's either one of those two appearances, and it's always nighttime, and sometimes it's raining. And um, I always recognize this place when I go to it, and there hasn't ever been one reoccurring um, location, perhaps, or one reoccurring person in these areas that I go. But I have had just a weird experience there where I feel like I contact a lot of dead things. Like I remember one dream I had, um, I was in this countryside type of area in inner zone. And I went into this old house where there was a basement. Uh, That should be a red flag there because there's no basements in Florida. We're beneath sea level. But (laughs) I went in this basement and I found this skeleton. And um, I remember he was kind of buried, like halfway buried, halfway unearthed, and uh, just getting the overwhelming sensation, like who lived in this house, what happened in this house, um, who is still, quote unquote, living, if you will, in this house. Uh, I remember another dream, oddly enough, where I met Burroughs in a very similar looking house. Uh, I, I went in this one really, you know, basically the same as what I just described, countryside, uh, old wooden houses, nighttime. I went in here and these old people, like, were having a tea party. Lots of, um, you know, well-dressed men and women with suits and dresses and curly mustaches and umbrellas and shit. And uh, they're having their tea party. And um, it's like when I got there, they knew I came to speak to somebody, but even I knew, didn't really know who I was coming to speak to. And they were like, oh, we'll just go in the other room there and walk in and he's waiting on you. I said, okay. And I open this door and I go in and it's just a room with nothing but like a really old 90s computer on it and a table, like an old 90s monitor. And uh, I go up and I sit down on it and it's kind of like flashing and glitching. And it was William S. Burroughs on the monitor. And I start talking to William S. Burroughs. And um, I can't remember the whole conversation that was said. And I asked him one specific thing that stuck out to me. I said, what are you writing now? And he said, I'm writing a poem. And it's called Broken Pencils. And that was the last thing I remember. And then I woke up. But uh, yeah, I guess like as far as a reoccurring setting or a place that I sometimes go, like, yeah, that that's definitely one of them. So that's Broken Pencils. Now, this is a Pearl of Wisdom from Burroughs. It is. What a great, you know, two words put together. Whenever he talks about um, language as a virus or um, smashing up the control images, rearranging reality, I could see where he would write something titled uh, Broken Pencils. Oh, yeah. I almost wanted to try and write my own poem called Broken Pencils just to see, you know, if he could be alive here with us today, you know, what would he... If he was gifted, uh, maybe I should do it as an automatic writing. Who knows? That's exactly what I was just thinking. I would take that and run, Sam. I would. It, it should be, you know, evoke him into, you know, his space, into your space, but as not in, a, in no formal way, just into your space as an inspiration, as a muse, right? In that sense. And uh, see what happens and follow through with that. I think it is going to be quite delicious 
Ooh, it's a, it's, it's a fruitful endeavor for sure. It's something to definitely pursue. And then think about it, you know, since he's he, broken pencils also is for a writer that's passed. Oh, wow. Right. That, that puts a whole new spin on it. I never even thought about it that way. Oh yeah. God. So there's that angle. And again, see, this is why this is so fun with you. Because I'm <laughs> Thank flesh, you. Flesh out some of these things. I usually do not do this. Uh, uh, okay. So, and then back to just the basics with dreaming. Let's look at how you experience. Uh, well, okay. Before I get to this, do you fly? Um. Oh, you know what? I did have one dream. Um, and it's probably my only really lucid dream where um, I flew. And uh, basically what happened was in the dream, I, I woke up and I didn't even realize it was a dream. I remember being in my house, everything seemed normal and I was completely conscious and, you know, had complete con control over my actions. And I remember realizing there's nobody else in my house. And that's when it occurred to me. This isn't it. This is a dream. I can maybe I can have some kind of control over this. And I did. I went into my yard and I said, I'm going to fly to Jacksonville. And um, this was the coolest part about it. I shit you not. When I flew to Jacksonville, I remember actually standing in my yard and pushing up, like pushing on some type of weight. And the harder I would push, I would lift more off the ground and eventually got to where I'm flying. And when I looked down, it felt like every road and every building was exactly where it would have been in real life. Like everything was perfect, perfectly located. Nothing was different or abstracted. It was like looking at it from a satellite on Google Images or something. And I remember flying, and um, this was kind of the funny part. I had all this control over the dream, right? But I got too caught up on the scenery. And all of a sudden, I start to <laughs> control of the dream, and I start falling, and I fall, and I hit the road, and I roll like this, and I remember getting up, and um, after that, it just kind of became a uh, a regular dream. <laughs> I didn't really you know. Control. This sounds like uh, being in the old school terminology, astro projection. Uh, out of body really and where things line up with the way you recognize them in waking life where there's uh you know the the dreamscape in and of itself before high lucidity happens can be very mutable and a lot of different things can shift it around and i find that the outer world stuff when we're obe or at Astro projecting. I'm trying to get past these old Victorian terms uh, because it's just states of lucidity for me at this point, including where we are right now. Uh, but that that is a cue to me that there was a, it was this was a deeper level, or it was a more awakened state. Let's put it that way because it all lined up with your waking assumption of spatial orientation. It was perfect. I mean, and really ever since that dream niche, I've never had another one like it. I've never had, I mean, I've had very realistic dreams, 
even dreams where I felt things and, you know, smelled and touched things, but I've never had another one like that where I was completely in control and everything looked exactly as how it would have in real life. <laughs> how, when was this, by the way? Oh, wow. This was probably maybe, I'd say about five years ago. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, that's a good one. And that, that kind of addressed my next basics here, basics question, which was about the states of lucidity and getting fully out of body is like, say, which we could look at as being awake within the dream, right? And, but on an esoteric level, you already understand where that goes. A lot of times I have to kind of explain that, uh, well, without explaining it. So a fully awakened dream where, you know, what's the highest lucidity? This was high lucidity right there that you just described. Was that it? I th Probably, yeah. As far as lucidity goes, I would say that's probably the highest point or uh, the, most, the most realistic point I've probably ever achieved through a dream. Did you, so with dream mechanics here again, what about uh there's the different states the liminal states and all this the hypnagogic all this what about these in between states where we're kind of tipping in and out of our flesh suits where you're you, you might be feeling like you're stretching out beyond it or going smaller or kind of spinning the spinning when you're drunk the spins that is i mean people take that for granted people that get really drunk but that's a very significant experience and if you can push into it there's a lot of magic to be had there if you can not throw up <laughs> <laughs> i've i've heard that too about like certain uh certain shamans that they would use alcohol or oh yeah yes awareness mm -hmm. or just an altered state of awareness well it, one of the things that gets you your cognitive mind to realize that you're not fully your body is when you're moving in and out of it and the spins are an example of that where your body's not spinning but you are spinning <laughs> you know <laughs> it's kind of like uh, the whirling dervishes <laughs> yes and so that's just like a pragmatic view of it the problem is the drunken state people get too tied up in uh we get caught up in in the sickness that's actually going on at the flesh that got us into that state. And so there's this attachment aspect and, and with all magic, attachment is such a big deal. We have to let it go for it to work even. So uh so so with this stuff being said, I'm curious so you've already said some you've said a lot of provocative stuff that I want to explore, but I, I'm also looking for the fact that you did bring us so many dreams and I want to I want to get into more dreams, so I want to just make sure we have a little time to with these specific dreams because it's Samhain, you know, it's it's Hollow's Eve. It's it's this period, and you mentioned this earlier. Dead in the dream, the dead in dream. Oh yes. So I know you have some fantastic content for us, or you wouldn't have said that. Thank you. Yeah, I um, I you know, I've only had a few dreams, I guess, that could be uh, 
really linked with the dead. I, you know what? I'll share one. Um, I shared this on John Rasmus's podcast uh, earlier this year, but it's one I don't really um, talk about that much because it is like a deeply per- well. Okay, and th- I guess this relates going back to what you said a minute ago about lucid dreams. Maybe this was the most lucid dream. I, I take that back about the flying dream. Maybe this was the most lucid dream. I, I just didn't really think of it as a uh, a lucid dream at the time. But um, well, really, the one you're having right now is. Oh, well, our waking reality, yeah. Like in a Gnostic sense, I guess. <laughs> this is the most lucid dream. Anyway. I Okay, so sometimes it's really hard for me to uh, wake up in the morning. <laughs> so what I'll do is I'll go turn on my light, and then sometimes I'll lay back down and even fall asleep again for another hour or two because eventually I know that light is going to force me to get up. and. Um, as you know, my dad died um, about one year ago last year, and uh, I had this dream towards the beginning of this year that um, basically I did what I just described. I had woken up, turned on the light, and laid down and went back to bed. And I guess when I fell back asleep, I never even realized I went back to sleep. And um, in my dream, I'm just sitting in bed and the light's on and everything looks completely normal as it always does. And uh, all of a sudden, my dad walked in, and he's like, hey, son, how are you doing? I said, I'm doing good. And he said, what are you doing today? I said, I'm going to the movies with a friend. And he said, well, what what movie are you going to see? And I told him the name of it, and I'm starting to tell him the plot and everything. And I stopped about halfway, and I said, wait a minute. You're dead. And he said, I love you, son. I said, I love you too, dad. And I woke up. And as I'm opening my eyes, I'm realizing this was a dream, which I didn't even realize that at the moment it happened. And I felt this pressure at the foot of my bed, and I thought it was my cat, like sleeping at the foot of the bed or standing at the foot of my bed. And when I opened my eyes, there was no cat. So that was probably like the deepest, I mean, communicating with the dead you know, balls deep, lucid dreaming experience I've ever had. Um, and he still shows up sometimes in my dreams. He's not always the central figure of my dreams, but sometimes he's almost there as, I wouldn't say a guardian, but he accompanies me on certain dreams, let's say. Did you, I love this example, another Thank really you. great one, you know, that the weight on the foot is when you wake up before he passed did you i cannot recall the details of his passing so were you aware he was going to pass it was very strange um i don't think i've ever told anybody about this uh so last year like towards the very beginning of 2018 he had a heart attack and then he had four stents put in his heart then he had another heart attack and he had open heart surgery well, you know, I mean, he'd already had throughout the years, like he'd been disabled since like 1980 and he had osteosarcoma bone cancer in like the early 2000s. And it, the man had went through a lot of shit in his lifetime. Like he really had quite the medical history. But despite all that, he seemed completely normal and functioning. And, uh, that I never, you know, I always knew eventually, like, yeah, he's had a lot wrong with him. He will die one day. Like, I always had that kind of in the back of my mind. But, you know, he was only about 63, 62, 63. So he wasn't 
that old. I wasn't looking forward to it at all. Like I wasn't, you know, expecting it so soon. But I remember uh, the day he died, um, I took him to his uh, doctor in Jacksonville and he wasn't sick or anything. It was just like a monthly thing he did every month. I took him to his doctor and it was just a normal day. And we had a long conversation and uh, I took him home and I said, you know what, I'll see you later on. I'm going to go home and get some sleep. And I did. And when I woke up that afternoon, I said, I'm going to go back over there. And I opened the door and he was gone. Uh, he had a heart attack. But um, yeah, that's that's eventually what did him in. So it was very, it was abrupt. And it was kind of a surprise. But at the same time, like I knew in the back of my head, it sort of kind of maybe at some point was going to happen anyway, but it wasn't like he was sick and on a hospital bed and I was waiting for him to die or something like that. It was still very out of the blue, let's say. Did you, were you having any dreams prior to his passing that, that, that stuck out with him? No, not that I can recall. And do you mind if we talk about this for a minute? Sure. Yeah. And so when you walk in and found him, I'm not sure how much death you've been around and if he was the closest person or not, but I sense it. Yeah, that was definitely, I mean, I've had a lot of people die in the last 10 years or so, but that was probably the one that affected me the most for sure. Yeah. 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 yeah I've, I've always sensed it when you, when, when it's come up it's i feel it i even feel it talking to you now uh so when you walked in and saw him and had you had you had experience with the aftermath with a shell before um i here's the thing like i had never walked in like on a dead body like that before yeah but i had been to a lot of funerals and just so many people that were really really close to me even before him had already died to the point that like i don't know i and i'm not even trying to be morbid i try to be optimistic about it i try to look at it as you know at this point i mean yeah it makes me sad but at the same time i realize that you know it's not the end and with my own personal faith and voodoo uh you know i i believe very much in venerating the ancestors and venerating the ones who have passed so yeah but, uh, yeah. But, uh, yeah yeah we share that and it, oh, we're immortal that was totally not the end it, i mean i feel it's amazing i know no one has real con you know i have some conviction in this but uh i just wanted to get i know you must have been to funerals but just to see the death in its raw state is a whole different thing as you now know for sure no for sure um yeah that it, it was definitely a very uh very deep moment for me did you could you uh and this is you know if you're uncomfortable let me know and we will move on did was there any so what are the first feelings and i'm trying to tie this into and the reason why I'm digging into this is this idea of where one's consciousness is during these kinds of experiences. So when you encounter him, you walk in and there's his shell. Is what's this your body, the the visceral experience that moved through your body and not your mind? Um, I would say just cold and electric, like a constant feeling like 
a thousand little ants are crawling all over my skin, but just also very, very cold. Mm -hmm. And did you, did you get a sense of, so you're in the presence of death for real then that's like, that's when you really get a sense for how that, that feels. And, and it's just, it's like a club. You have to know, you have to have been through it to know. And, uh, so so you've got you've got this sensate stuff going on and this cold sensation were you did that lead into a heavy flood of emotion or did it take you time to process um well it it took me about a day or two to really process it because when he died like he'd always told me for years he said now when i die i want you to do x y and z and I realized, like, when I got there, you know, I, you know, at first, you know, of course, that emotion, emotional impact hit me. And then I realized, okay, I know that, you know, one, I've got to tell my mom, two, the police and the ambulance are going to show up. Before I can, you know, turn into a big wad of tears, I have to do X, Y, and Z. So I did everything exactly the way he told me to, uh, which I think made him very happy. And it was oh, yeah. exactly the way he described it too when he was still alive. Uh, you know, he said, "Watch, son, watch. It'll be exactly like this. These fake ass funeral directors will come up and they'll pet you on the hand and say, we're so sorry for your loss.' As they flash their big fake smiles, and you know uh-huh. they do all that shit just so they can really sell you an overpriced casket and an overpriced yes. tombstone and a shitty little lot in a cemetery." So he didn't want any of that. He was, my dad lived in a studio apartment that was one room. He didn't own a car and he lived on disability for 30 years. Um, He was very adamant about not giving money to these crooks. Uh, So we, we didn't have a funeral. We didn't have him buried. We had him cremated and my mother and myself were really the only ones who sort of, you know, privately mourned and celebrated his lost or mourned his loss celebrated him as a human being let's say yeah yeah and uh we buried him um on top of his mother's grave which was also where he had buried his brother who was also cremated so you've got three generations of people basically oh, wow. in one grave so that and that's a whole different story but of course uh around the time he died um at Gede, which is november 2nd which is right around the corner I still had his ashes in my possession when that holiday came around and uh I said my proper goodbyes and uh showed my respects then while I still had the opportunity so that was um that was a very special thing. Yeah, this is this is moving. I, I thank, thank you so much for sharing this content. It's it's helpful. It trust me, it's going to be helpful to people out there. I hope and, so. Yeah, and and these different practices uh, are important in different ways of approaching how we all move through this. And uh, this is just, it's very significant. I, I love, I've got to tell you, I love that that burial site has the three of them there. And I know you must from a Voodoo perspective and working with the dirt. Oh, yes. Yeah, because even digging the hole, I realized, like, I'm not even digging in dirt anymore. Like, this is actually where, you know, my uncle is, you know, like, that is him now, you know, and that's my dad, too. So if I was ever to collect, like, a jar of graveyard dirt from that site, uh, that's like 
three different ancestors in one. <laughs> yeah, it's very powerful for for you in the lineage. Very, very powerful. And of course, you buy it, even though they're, they're your direct relatives, yes. as you know. Uh, uh, so, so in and around this period, was he showing up or relatives connected to him in your dream life? Um, you know what? I can't really. Rem- I don't want to say that they were. Um, I I do think maybe I did have one dream about my uncle Rick, who was his brother who had passed away around that time, but it, it, you know what? No, not really. Nothing that really, really stands out to that degree, like I described earlier. And so what was the next dream? What was the very first dream? Is that the one you already gave us where your dad popped in or was there were there precursors to that? You know what? There was one brief precursor to that, but I don't know if I want to talk about that one on air. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm not trying to oh, be. Oh no, no apologies. I guess I can talk about it. It's okay. It's um I do no, remember no, it's... like like right <laughs> after he died, like right, right after he died, I had a dream kind of like that. I forget the setting, but I remember I was talking to him and then I realized like, oh my god, he's dead. And I said, Is that really you? And he was like, uh like he didn't even know a response to give me. And he's, I was like, was that you or is that really you? Cause I thought you were dead. And, uh, you know, he's didn't really have a, anything to say. Like I could tell just cause I told him that he was taken aback and, uh, I woke up and I was just an emotional mess. Yeah. 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 It took me a long time with my, uh, I love no one more than my mom. She was, and still is the person I love the most. And so, it, you know, the relationship just changes and it, it goes in and out. Uh, but it took me actually years to be able to converse with her. I kept, it's funny because I had to keep pushing her away. Like it was one-on-one was too much. And then I'd push her to another room or there'd be glass between us. You know, there was always something because I got so emotional and, uh, yeah, that's significant. And it's it's interesting what I'm hearing a lot now, Sam, which I hadn't heard prior to doing Nox Mente, and this is what's coming forward for me. I had read it in some of the studies and books, but personally, the life of talking to people about dreams since I was about 10, it's it's coming full force. Encountering people that are encountering their dead in dreams that didn't realize they're dead being told they're dead. Right. And I find, I just find this so significant and uh, it makes sense to me because if you think, well, I'm not my shell. Right. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> and so just because I'm not in it, I'm not dead. So it's, a, you know, it makes complete intellectual sense, but in the physical, in the body, in the heart, in the gut. Totally. This is a different experience, right? It's like that, um, oh God, it's like that uh, scene in The Exorcist 3 where um, if you've ever seen the movie, uh, the main protagonist is a, um, a detective who's looking for a murderer and uh, his best friend is a priest. And um, the murderer cuts people's throats or cuts people's heads off, I want to say. And um, in this dream, the detective goes to this place that, kind of looks like maybe an airport or a bus station 
and it's actually purgatory and you see all these angels and just sort of people walking around um i think even fabio plays an angel <laughs> he looks very stoic <laughs> it's really cool he's it's it's pretty scary looking actually for an angel but uh he goes up to his um priest friend and uh he's having a conversation with him and he goes yeah this is such a weird dream and the priest looks at him and says only one of us is dreaming right now and he woke up and later that day he found out the priest had been murdered oh so. <laughs> it gives you the chills doesn't it does it? It oh for sure chills. so with so in in light of this and on this the sacredness of this thin veil uh and all our beloved having you know just collectively we are all we accept that this is a thin veil so it is because collectively we are saying it is uh what other dreams with the dead have you had that you can recall and i we can never forget our beloved uh fur friends and animal lower than human animal not necessarily lower than human but non-human animals Ooh, that that's true you know um I think the ones that I shared there were probably the most, you know, the meat and potatoes of it. Really, the only other one I can think of that I don't know if this person was dead or not. I assume they were probably dead. Um, but it also related to um, Baron Samedi. So I think in that aspect, it does kind of relate to like the dead in dreams. So I had this dream. Um, and this was earlier this year too. I, I had this dream. I was in middle school, and the middle school is actually within walking distance of my house. And by the basketball court, and this building doesn't exist in real life, by the way. But by the basketball court, there was this old wooden house. It looked like it was abandoned. And um, me and two other friends that I had went to school with. One of them was a very close friend, and the other one was kind of this douchebag. I didn't really like and I don't know why he was hanging out with me but uh we we went together neither of them practiced magic though which is kind of surprising in retrospect as why they may have been there but we went together to this house to see what is in this house and I go inside and uh it's filled with various voodoo ritual uh paraphernalia there was an altar to Baron Samedi in there with a skull on it and um, empty bottles and candles. And uh, one of the two people that went with me, we'll call them N, we'll call them A and N for short, because I won't really mention them anyway. N had a Coca-Cola, and um, he took the Coca-Cola, and he unscrewed it, and he pours it into a bottle on this altar. And I said, if you do that, just make sure not to put the cork on. And then I look on the ground, and I see a bottle of white rum, so I pick up the white rum and I pour some of the white rum into the bottle. And um, there was a circular fire pit too, um, made out of bricks. And on the fire pit, there was a Jamaican flag with Ogun's Veve on it. And then this little black boy, about 12 or 13 years old, came in and he's like, Hi, how are you? I live here and I practice Obia. And I said, um, What's your name? And he told me, but even in the dream and after I woke up, like it almost felt like that part was purposely blurred from my memory. And I don't know why, but I'm talking with him. And um, he said, I said, uh, how old are you? He goes, oh, I'm 12. I'm almost 13. And I said, you live here? And he said, yeah. 
And I said, and you serve the Orisha and the Loa? And he said, yeah, yes, I do. I said, well, you're very young and this is very admirable. Just be careful and keep up the good work. He says, okay. And uh, we go to leave, right? And I'm walking out of the doorway and I turn around and I look back at the little boy and he has this expression of horror on his face. And I say, what's the matter? And he points at the top corner of the room and I look in at the top corner of the room and this black smoke, like I imagine it was some kind of entity is emerging from the corner of that room in, in the form of like this black smoke. And it's just billowing out. And um, my other two friends, N and A, they run and I go to run. And it's this classic scenario. I'm sure you've heard about this in other people's dreams too. I go to run and it feels like I'm walking underwater or in slow motion everything else is happening in regular speed and i feel like i'm walking through a swimming pool of jello i can't get away fast enough and then i wake up <laughs> but i've always wondered who the little obia boy was um i wonder why he was in my dream i wonder if he was uh wonder if he came with one of the other loa like baron samedi or i wonder if maybe he's even linked to an ancestor of mine perhaps uh, there's really no telling. I've always wanted him to come back. I've never seen him again. I I love this. And it is curious, isn't it? You know, the young ones in dreams that aren't connected to you, too. It's like pulling a page in the in the tarot, right? Right. And uh, sometimes I think of them like that. They're, it's bearers of information uh, or an idea right an idea or a concept and so there's always there's you know so many angles but this leads me into asking this question that i had i come into this wanting to make sure we cover some of this with the different uh so you know skilled and knowledgeable with so many different traditions oh, and so you. much occult knowledge and all the stuff that you've done and, and participated in, where do you see the most overlap with the dreams and the workings? So, I mean, clearly with the Voodoo, you've already given us a few examples, and, and I expected to hear that, but maybe with some of the TOS stuff and... Ooh, um, you know what? I don't know if any one in particular really outweighs the other at this point. I see it a decent bit with like goetic entities too sometimes. Um, remember earlier when you mentioned sort of that half awake, half dreaming state, like when you're sort of either about to wake up or you can't really hit that deeper level of REM sleep? Uh, yes. I'll have a lot of like, they are dreams, but they're so short and I can't really remember them. I'll have like a lot of little dreams in that state where I'm holding some type of Goetia sigil and I'm always either naked or I'm wearing a black robe and I'm at this altar. I'm usually holding it in the air with one hand, chanting some kind of name or calling on some infernal name. And sometimes I'll be able to remember just the name or just the sigil, like Astaroth or Belial or whoever, but um, I never really am able to take that much of those for whatever reason, of those specific dreams back with me. I wish I could remember more about them. Sometimes I remember doing these 
workings on the astral plane, and I don't even remember what it was I was doing or calling on. <laughs> that can be a little bothersome. Yeah, those often, you know, just tying into the tarot again, all that stuff that kind of gets uh, veiled reminds me of the high priestess. So we know we did a working, but there's a veil between you and the working. And, you know, of course, it's the knowing with the finger on the mouth and, and the book of power right there and the, the columns and all, you know, everything it represents. And so I I tend personally, I I allow that to be because it's going to unfold. <laughs> oh, for sure. For sure. The veil, the veil gets lifted. <laughs> and what a perfect time to discuss this too, considering it's Halloween. It's uh, the veil is almost gone. It's non-existent at this point. You're going right. to summon or do a spell. This is the time to do it. <laughs> well, the thing that people, I, f I find that it seems, this seems to be a, a more for the, add water and stir type of cultists that is everyone realizes or forgets that these are seasons so we're in the salon season for 30 days really i mean we're in it for a turn of the a turn of the magical wheel right no it's uh yeah we're, we're at that death stage that yin stage right before we circle right back around into spring next year <laughs> Right. And so it's, uh, it's never just one day. It's like a full moon, you know, there's the three days around a full moon or the lunation and those three days are important, but then we have, you know, the year, the wheel of the year, the wheel of the month is just that little microcosm of it. And then of course we can just fractal that the hell out to where the Netherlands of, <laughs> of thinking. So I want to get, I want to get your ideas, Sam, on on some of this on some of this stuff. So, since we're on the topic of of our sacred dead and of the sacred dead and of the veil, what are your thoughts at this point where you stand right now? Because hopefully they change will change a lot. Hopefully by tomorrow something changes. You know, it's our one. It's the beautiful aspect that we get new sensory input and we allow ourselves to grow. Where what do you think death is from where you stand right now? Oh wow! You know that's um that's a really deep question. And uh, before I answer it, I just want to say I can only give an approximation of my understanding. I don't claim to know any absolute truth, uh, but I, I do have, based on my own personal belief and things that I have experienced, uh, you know, just sort of my own understanding of it. Um, I don't believe in heaven or hell, but I do believe in life after death and I've seen some evidence for reincarnation, although um, if given an option, I would definitely not want to reincarnate. <laughs> That's just me. Uh, I think, um, so instead of heaven or hell, there's a place called Egun, uh, not to be confused with the Loa of Iron and Strength, Ogun, of course. There's a place called Egun, which is basically just the land of the dead, land of the ancestors. Um, and, uh, to me, that whole concept makes more sense than, uh, heaven or hell. I think, uh, and there, there is even kind of an idea 
that spirits can be elevated from Magoon to either go back to the source or um, possibly even reincarnate. But I give no definite answers. I just know that uh, within my own understanding, that that seems to resonate the most with me. What separates you from the state of death now? I mean, what what's the difference? I think the only difference is a physical body. And what makes you convinced that that this is real, in the sense that you would separate yourself from death? I think that begs a deeper question of um you know, the fabric of reality being real and uh, with our, how we as individuals uh, perceive that thing. I think that's kind of a Gnostic idea. Um, I think that the traditional Christian Gnostics obviously saw this as a uh, illusion that they would try to escape. As more of a left-hand path sympathizer, I see this as a uh, illusion that I'm stuck in whether I like it or not, so I'm going to manipulate it to my advantage as much as I can. <laughs> mm, ave to that. Ave. <laughs> ash, ashe, baby. And, ashe. Uh, ashe. I thought you meant ave satanis. <laughs> well, ashe just, works too. <laughs> we can do, right. Ashe alafia. Um, so, all right, with this, with this idea and these concepts running around, and everyone knows, everyone knows, I'm just looking for opinions, and I honestly don't believe anyone has the answer unless they're, you know, there might be people who have the answer, they're moving in and out and are, are fully awake within the dream, and I know they are out there, I know they exist. However, in general... It's a general rule of thumb. We all have a say here because there is no bar. And that's what I like about this. That's, so that's the beautiful part Come at part me with it. a PhD and whatever the hell you think <laughs> you've got, and it's still a leveler. <laughs> that's, that's the beautiful part about your show, though. I think, um, you know, I like you just said, I don't claim to know any any absolute truth on that subject, but maybe through all of us, maybe within a small piece of each of our truths, maybe we can get closer to the actual answer. Maybe this is a mosaic. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> it's only me who wants to. Okay, so so this idea of, so if we're looking at death, what about dream? What's separating you from the state of dreaming? Ooh, as, as far as... um. You're allegedly awake right now. So what what tells you that you're awake and not dreaming? What what makes you feel that this is a, there's a separation between those two states? For me, I guess the, the paradigm that's made the most sense is sort of the one that people like Kenneth Grant or Carlos Castaneda would uh, talk about. They would say um the right hand consciousness, the waking, and I don't even necessarily mean this is in like right hand path, left hand path magic. I just want to get that out first. But you could say uh, the right hand path consciousness, the waking uh, consciousness, and then the left hand path consciousness, the abstracted, um, not bound by physical limitations, uh, an interplay of personal interpretation through how you perceive these things uh i think that would be the difference i think that um 
both are equally valid and i think that to totally live in the left-hand reality would invite nothing but insanity and chaos but if we can go to that left-hand reality if we can learn these lessons and then come back to where we are right now then perhaps that can benefit us as humans um either in our day-to-day mundane lives or maybe on a deeper introspective level. So how do you parse out the idea of, say, memories from dreams from now? So this idea, we're obviously going to weave in the idea of time-space, right? I like where you're going with this. I hope I can pick a good enough answer. <laughs> no answer is wrong. <laughs> Silly. I think, uh, wow, that's a good one. I think that, uh, well, maybe memories. Here's, that, that's the funny thing about memories, right? We can remember something, and even though, yeah, that memory might have some basis in quote-unquote reality, whatever that is, or an event that quote-unquote actually happened, uh, how we perceive that and how it's affected us in our life could change how we remember that. And I think that even kind of goes into like false memories or um, just how people really interpret things, honestly. I don't think it even really means that somebody is lying, but, you know, sometimes the way those things or the way... uh, we interpret those things where we are at that period in life can play a big role in how we remember them later on. And that does make me wonder what the difference is with dreams. I think dreams are totally um, not bound by uh, some of the more, some of the limitations of our waking reality, but memories, memories are probably closer to waking reality, but they're not completely bound by those limitations either. Maybe memories are the middle ground between dreams and uh, waking reality. I hope that wasn't too much word salad. And so what, <laughs> and, and so someone like you, no, this is excellent, all excellent. Uh, so what, so someone like you, especially who messes with the idea of artifice and uh, identity and brings all this beautiful stuff that, that we all know and love you for, uh, and that attracted me to you. You know, uh, what's the difference in, in, so this is kind of an, it's an identity thing in the visage. So you can, you can throw on a lace front wig and be poppy for us. You can, you can, you know, be hardcore Sam for us. You can be lollipop little girl, Sam. I mean, there's like, you know, a lot of different identities that are floating around. And I'm wondering, in in line with what we've just been talking about, the states of death, the states of memory, the states of dreaming, and now when we mess around with identity and artifice, is there, you know, where is Sam? What is Sam? And so it's it's not just like, I'm giving it to you because you're Sam. We're talking to Sam. (laughs) I mean this for anyone. Where's the core consciousness? That's a great, great, great question to ask. Um, I think for me, uh, wow. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll preface it with saying this. A big question 
deserves a big answer. Uh, I think that each of those, um, whether it's a look or it's a persona that I try to give off, I think that I'm trying to express a different aspect of me, whether it's how I feel or how I perceive myself or whenever I portray myself a certain way, how that has an effect with how society sees me. Uh, you could even say that's sort of a lesser form of black magic. Um, you know, I, I give this appearance and um, based on that appearance, you know, people buy into that as a quote unquote reality, which I'm not saying I'm fake, but at maybe on the surface level, these different personas or masks, maybe even a Dallas sense that I wear are, um, they're illusionary in a way. I think that um, they're illusionary because yeah, that is part of who I am, but it's not all that I am. It's just a piece of who I am. Even me stripped down right now with no makeup, no wigs, no costumes, you know, even this is still just a fraction of my totality. Um, I could explore those areas to uh, gratify something, whether it's uh, how I feel sexually or emotionally or a combination of the two or artistically. Um, it could be anything, really. Uh, even my imagination, you know, maybe I want to dress up like Bruno Bucciarati from Golden Wind. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I, I don't know. Bob Dylan, Bob Dylan's real name is Robert Zimmerman. And uh, there's a quote from him where he's about to go on stage and he says, I have to put my Bob Dylan mask on. And that said to me that Bob Dylan is obviously a, a character, if you will, that this Robert Zimmerman has created, this persona, uh, you know, of sort of the Woody Guthrie-esque, um, you know, grew up in the country, rode the railroads type of folk singer guy, because nobody really gave a shit about the little Jewish boy named Robert Zimmerman who grew up in the Midwest. So it, the same could be said for David Bowie, uh, you know, Ziggy Stardust, um, Aladdin Sane, uh, Diamond Dogs, Halloween Jack, um, you know, these are things that he created, characters, if you will, that he personified. And, um, you know, e even as a warning from Bowie, you know, he would tell you uh, there was a point in time where he spent so much time as Ziggy Stardust, he thought he was Ziggy Stardust. And, um, you know, he, that's why he basically had to kill that character and really start anew as any... Um, artist really does so he didn't fall into that trap uh i think whenever maybe i dress up especially if it's somebody else that already exists like poppy like if i dress like poppy if i portray poppy then i can't let that appearance dictate who i am because then i'm not even really living for me i'm really living for you know an appearance of either mimicry or trying to appease to something that's only a fraction of what I am. <laughs> and that, that goes right to what I wanted to get with this query here, which is mimicry. We, so we start moving into that. And by the way, you just always right ahead of my head. You know, I'm thinking Ziggy Stardust and the Alfin Duke and all, you know, all the great Bowie characters. And, and Stevie Nicks always says it too. I'm putting Stevie Nicks on now. You know, and, uh, and I think most performers 
understand that. Certainly people in the theater understand that. However, with mimicry, I want to move into this idea of, and this will be great with you, of possession. Ooh. So with all of this that we've built, this little house we're, we're dwelling in now that we've built here tonight, in the idea of mimicry is through this veil where is where is that line there's a line there when say when you're doing poppy you could you could succumb to it and in a ritual sense in a voodoo sense we do do this oh absolutely i think that uh voodoo possessions are very very real um i went to a uh Wow, you know, I I I understand exactly what you're saying. Like, but I think there with Vudan and the Loa uh, or the Orisha, it even goes a step beyond that. But um, it does play a role. Uh, let me explain. I went to a ceremony last summer where um, it was a group dance. Uh, had a, had ritual drummers. There's about 100, 200 people there. Um, you know, of course, with different Loa. Uh, there's different drum rhythms and there's different dances. Like uh, usually they're all, I call it, it, this isn't the real name for it, but I've nicknamed it the step. You know, you take a step forward, a step back, take a step forward, a step back. And of course with different, different loa, there's usually different um, attributes that come with them. Uh, my holy guardian Orisha is Obatala, who's an old man. And I remember um, when we, we did the song to Obatala, and I took on the form of Obatala, I mimicked, you know, I, I felt like I became an old man. My hands felt like they had atrophy or, um, you know, a lot of uh, uh, joint, I, I can't think of the name for it, a lot of, um, oh God, what's it called when you pop your knuckles and shit? But the arthritis. arthritis, yeah. I felt like I had a lot of arthritis in my hands, like they were slightly bent inward. My back was slightly arched. And, you know, the more I got into that state of being, uh, the more I was able to channel into a Batala. And the same with the other uh, Orisha as well. Like when they did uh, Ilegua, everybody just sort of <laughs> went crazy. Little kids were running around. Like people weren't really following steps anymore. People were laughing and running around and shit. It was awesome. But uh, so that is one aspect of it, you know, putting on this uh, persona to, to, to help come in contact with this deity. I've even done it alone with a Baron Samedi. Uh, there's a dance called Labanda, which is um, he, Baron Samedi carries a cane and he uses his cane like a penis. And uh, Labanda is basically an improvisational dance where he uses his cane like a giant penis. And uh, so that's one half of it. But whenever you get in that ritual setting, um, I mean, yeah, there were people dancing, participating in the ritual. But what I noticed, there were people talking, you know, having a drink and like some caviar on a cracker or whatever. Ha ha ha. And like they could be completely normal talking to somebody like I'm talking to you now. And then within a split second, their arms would contort like this and they would just start screaming, screaming. Like, oh, oh, I've seen uh, I saw one man. Um, who I'm sure was no stranger to being possessed, uh, get possessed by Yimeya. And um, that was probably the most intense possession I have ever seen. He bent his arms. It looked uncomfortably painful. He bent his arms behind his back like a chicken, 
and starts flapping his arms and spinning in a circle. And he falls and he hits the ground and they took him inside. And I probably shouldn't say too much about this, but I guess it's okay since I'm not mentioning names or people. Uh, they put a dress on him and uh, basically dressed him up to look like Yemeya. And when he came out, the man he was before, whoever he was, was gone. Uh, he spoke in this loud, shrill, uh, feminine laughter, like it sounded a little maniacal, but definitely not evil. And um, he, I, he was neither speaking in Spanish nor in English. I don't know what language this guy was speaking in. Maybe it was Yoruba. I won't swear to it. Maybe it was like talking in tongues. I don't know. Uh, but it's it's a very um, intense uh thing to witness but yeah i mean even you know going back to the example you made i mean if if yeah if i dress like poppy if i put on this wig if i do my makeup to look this certain way or put on clothes to look this certain way i can channel the archetype of what that is because we all know uh poppy's just a character created by mariah and titanic sinclair anyway so <laughs> i'm embracing that archetype i can embody that and uh, put that on display. Oh yeah, it's cultural voodoo, and it's amazing. That's why I love Poppy so much. You know this. Oh, I know. I mean, there's so many ways to we could talk just about Poppy. And I just want to say it's that is it's so cool to um you're you're the only person that um and I didn't even know this at the time. I just remember going on to Poppy Church one day, and out of the blue, <laughs> there was Niche, and I said. And you were mentioning all these people like Saroth and C.W. Chanter. And I said, hold, hold up. How do you know? How do you know all these people? Because I have never met another um, another poppy seed that knew anything about our little community or even really about uh, too many of them that knew about the occult or anything like that. So I thought that was really cool that uh, we were Oh, there, we have so many later. ties. Birdio, TOS. I mean, there's so many things that tie us together. So... Uh, I want to I want to continue on with where I'm going here, okay. and so so with this idea of possession, and it's absolutely static, electric when it's going on. People that don't experience it don't understand. It's static, electric. It is otherworldly when you're really in the presence of of it in done in a voodoo or voodoo sense or even santeria in these in this spiritualized. Uh, I, you know, I, I don't even want to use this word, but in this positive light, that's like a very, you know, desired state. Uh, it's unbelievable to witness. So I have a two pointer here in your dreams and in waking life. So we're crossing the lines again, right? Mm -hmm. This is where we must, I find, I think this is the place to live is, is, on those crossed lines, the crossed keys. And uh, do you ever experience the omniscient view? So you're not behind the eyes, you're viewing your experience from somewhere else, third person or in the corner. Oh, wow. Yeah, actually that has happened. Um, you know, mainly, I mean, there have been things, I guess you could say with quote unquote, my mind's eye using active imagination that I quickly realized, oh, wait, this isn't just my imagination. 
but there was one really intense experience where I did see something with the naked eye and it wasn't my mind's eye. It was like something I really saw, like I'm looking at this computer screen right now. Um, it was after working with uh, Ball in the Goetia about two years ago. Um, I told this story over on Saroth's channel uh, over a year ago or so. But um, it, it's really one of the very few true paranormal experiences I've had in the occult, um, which there haven't been many, which I do it more for spiritual than paranormal reasons anyway, but that's beside the point. Anyway, I had just gotten done working with Ball for a week. And after this had happened, I kept seeing like a little black thing in the corner of my eye. Like I thought it might have been a shadow or even my cat because I own two black cats. And I would see this thing in the corner of my eye. And as soon as I'd turn my head to look at it, it would kind of disappear. And I would think, oh, that's nothing. You know, my eyes are playing tricks on me. It's a shadow or a cat or whatever. And one night uh, I was on Skype talking to um, a friend. And I see this little black thing about the size of a baseball that just looked like black smoke. And if people think I'm making this up, that's 100% fine. I understand because even I think I sound crazy telling this story, but it, it's true. <laughs> it's true for me. I saw this thing appear in front of me, like a little black ball of smoke about the size of a baseball. Clear as day. You know, it's not something I saw and it disappeared or it ran away. It's like right there floating through the air in my room. And I see another one. And I see another one. And then I see another one. I see another one. And before I know it, it felt like there were about a hundred of these things in my room circling me while I'm sitting at the computer like fish in a bowl. And I'm kind of freaked out because I'd heard these people like EA Coettings with their video program say, oh, summon spirits to physical appearance, summon spirits. And I just thought it was a bunch of bullshit. I thought it was to sell their books or it was a gimmick or whatever. But this was very, very, very real. And um, I was thinking, you know, I was like, well, they're not here to hurt me, so maybe I shouldn't banish them. But that went on for a few minutes, like maybe three minutes, and it all just disappeared. And uh, to my own understanding, what I think that was is um, in the Goetia, you'll read about different spirits and will say, this is King so-and-so, ruler of whatever. He owns a legion of 735 spirits. Well, whenever you summon him, you also summon the legions that he governs over. So I think that those were probably lesser spirits that uh, serve under Ball. But um, that, the weird thing about that is, uh, you know, it wasn't even in a ritual context. The ritual had been over by a couple of days, and um, it happened while I was having a Skype, you know, call on my phone so uh, or computer. So it just really kind of, I don't know, it didn't scare me. But it definitely startled me for the simple fact I just didn't think anything like that could be real. Yeah, it's uh, well, so this is when we have to really look at. I guess I need to question your concept of time. What what is time? How how do you perceive time, Sam? Ooh, this is this is another one of my favorite subjects. Wow. I think overall time is a man-made concept to use kind of like a measuring stick 
to recall things that have happened, establish where we are right now, and predict things to come. That's the, the boring answer, right? But that would be, quote-unquote, real-time. Uh, Stephen Hawking, and this is something I, in my own personal studies, I find really relates a lot to magic, especially magic that has to do with time travel or meditation, things like that. Um, Stephen Hawking also speaks of something called imaginary time. And uh, this is where real time is vertical, like I just explained, past, present, future, whatever. Imaginary time is linear. Uh, it can go in any direction. So through imaginary time, through this concept of imaginary time as a tool in certain rituals, uh, we can, quote-unquote, time travel to any destination we really want to go. Uh, and there's even rituals like this in the Voodoo Gnostic workbook uh, where they use an eight-pointed circle with a different loa different, uh, governing over a different point in space-time in the circle. So considering that real time is even a man-made concept, uh, Hawking says that imaginary time is equally as valid as real time. So... If, if he's going to say that, that's there's got to be some merit behind it. <laughs> well, it breaks down to to these ideas that what we feed grows, right? And so there's, you know, I mean, there's all that magical context around so much. And time really has it, has it summed up because there are so many participants everyone's participating in the idea of of time as a construct and so and in a way that is kind of holds down the magical uh the you know there's a glass plate there that holds down the magic and it's part of the challenge of the magician right we're gonna move oh, through for this. sure i'm gonna oh, break on sure. through to the other side. <laughs> <laughs> Which you can do by simply dreaming. <laughs> yes, actually, that's a very, that's a very true statement. So I just want to, I want to open it up and make sure that people have time to ask you questions. Okay. Uh, the, I got questions. I see Jerry is doing something. I think he might oh. have questions. Yeah. No wonder you guys weren't hearing me. I was muted. <laughs> I wondered why you were so quiet. I know I did too. Usually he's he'll at least pop in. I I had like ten times I, t I said something you guys didn't answer me like okay. Oh, Jerry! Oh no! <laughs> I wondered. It's, it's cool. Muted. It's no worries. There's so much of this conversation that Jerry gets knee deep in, at least knee deep. And so what you were just talking about though, and the. Um... I forget the timeline and whatnot. And then you said something about, uh, I don't remember what you said, Nish, but it reminded me about what Sam said about David Bowie destroying the Ziggy Stardust character. And I think that's also uh, an alchemical process that allows him to create something better. Yes. In yes. a way. In a way. No, you're, you're dead on. You're 100% accurate. Uh, another thing that uh, is both shared by Castaneda and Kenneth Grant. Um, I think Grant even cites Castaneda in one of his books about this. Is um, There's an idea of magical mannequins or um, making a sacrifice to the eagle, as Castaneda calls it. And this whole idea of 
the mannequin that you sacrifice, it is basically the limitation of how you perceive yourself. That's the sacrifice you make to the to the eagle. And when you sacrifice this, you sacrifice this mannequin, you have liberated yourself into a wider range of possibilities. So say you um you have it in your mind, uh, okay, I like this TV show, I only listen to this kind of music, I eat this kind of food, and I live in this kind of city. I embrace this kind of culture, and that's who I am. I'm nothing else but that, and I'm sticking to it. If you sacrifice that idea, you broaden your horizons to the ability to where if you go to a totally different city, totally different location, or just put yourself in situations that you usually wouldn't be in, um, you know, you you broaden your, your awareness. Yeah. Totally. Even the uh, sorcerers from northern Mexico used to do that. Like uh, Don Juan and his people, they would go to Southern California and go to places that were very um, not expected for a sorcerer to go. They'd wear nice suits and maybe eat at a French restaurant or something or go to a play but um, and almost behave as totally different people than they would have in Sonora, Mexico. Nice. Very gentlemen of Jupiter. The other thing I wanted to bring up was the Typhonian magic and Kenneth Grant and the whole, uh, what's the book? Something Eve. I, I can't remember his book with the, that describes all the demons of the tree of life on the back. Oh, uh, Night Side of Eden. Night Side of Eden. Thank you. So there's this dude named Tim Refat. You ever heard of him? Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> so he talks about Kenneth Grant in that book and says that the, uh, his, his uh, position is that the tree of life that Grant per presents is backwards. It's like Kenneth Grant, or yeah, it is. It's um, it it's basically uh, an upside down version of the tree of life. Say right, but the then, paths are but, different. But then he says it's horizontally flipped, so it's actually <sighs> backwards. And because it's backwards, everyone's doing the wrong magic against it. I. <sighs> With all due respect, I can't take anything Tim Refett says seriously because he also says that Taylor Swift is a Nagual and that he communicates directly to Katy Perry through dreams. <laughs> yeah, he does say that. <laughs> he also says, um, he said some very uh, derogatory things about the comedian Kevin Hart. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll be honest, I'll, all cards on the table. Uh, I... Uh, Tim Refett's YouTube channel is sort of like the best unintentional comedy for me I've ever seen. I was watching him talk about the clip-off one day, and he's saying, uh, I, I know, even for like a British accent, the way he enunciates his words is so strange to me. He talks and, uh, weird, yeah. He, he's talking about the clip-off, and he's saying, uh, okay, well, each one of these 22 paths is related to a different demon, and there's a different sexual magical ritual with each one, so if you want to access the clip-off, you can get a lady with a strap-on to simply fuck you up the ass. And he's actually kind of right about that. But the way yeah, he presents it is... Yeah, I'm like, that's, a, is, that's uh, right. <laughs> the way he oh, presents, yeah. I don't like think he, his magic uh, descriptions and whatnot are, are incorrect. He's very he, abrasive personality, though. The things he studies are really fascinating. They're actually the same things I study, but it's the way he presents it mm -hmm. that turns me off. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh yeah. He's, he's hardcore. I mean, he's, 
It's uh, he alien. He's got to alienate everyone. Whom does he not alienate? <laughs> well, that feeds him power. The, the insults are everywhere. So, but his if you look at the content, it's very interesting. Yeah, but he's a black magician, and hate towards him is energy for his work. As he as he openly <laughs> so states. He <laughs> right, as he openly states, and clearly that he is feeding off of that at Absolutely. least. If nothing else, it's in a vacuum, but it perhaps is bigger than that. Anyway, I just thought I'd bring that up because it's it's interesting. Oh, it is. If you um I I'll make a quick suggestion. You might even want to pick up this book or, or maybe anybody at home. Um there's a really great book by a lady named, uh, I believe her name is Michelin Linden, and uh, it's called Typhonian Teratomas, and it's basically a uh, path working of all the uh, demons from the clip-off, the tunnels of set, and um, yeah, it's very practical, very straight to the point, good little book. And Jerry, you'll get that in the chat for everyone and in our what was her show last links. Name? Uh, Linden. Uh, L-I-N-D-E-N, I think. D-E-N is, yeah. I'll find it. It'll be in the show notes. Probably not true. It's a, it's a, I think in an occult library, it's a must-have. Oh, it's a great book. You read it too, Nish? Uh, you know how I, I don't know if you know Don Von Nagy, but she's, uh, I had, she lived here for a while, so I had full access to her library, which is remarkable. And oh. uh, I picked up a lot of the Typhonian stuff directly it, you know, she brought a lot of that into my world. Cool. That's awesome. Yeah, and also she calls uh, Bertio the wizard in the tower. You know, she visits him and stuff. They oh, are quite close. You told me about her. Now, I've never met her, but um, that's that's fascinating. Yeah. I think you probably encountered her. She's got different, like, like Anonin. And, I mean, I think you, you must have encountered her. Everyone, she, you know how the names go. In right. different places. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Michael Bertio is one of my favorites. Um, I even wrote down uh, some, uh, we don't have to get to them if you, if you want to move on, but I even wrote down some dreams that related to things that uh, happened to me with the Voodoo Gnostic Workbook. <laughs> if you were interested in any of that. Oh, God, I am. Oh, man. Um, if you want, I can I can go off on my last little chunk of Voodoo dreams before we... Move let's on see what Jerry had a little pile of questions, and then okay. let's let's no, no, end no, no, on. I'm done. I'm done. No, no, go on, because no, I felt I... so bad. I didn't realize you you didn't know you were muted the whole time. I only wrote down two. So I'm okay, I love, cool. I love your shirt, by the way. I just oh, want to thank get... you. He Jerry's the king of good shirts. So... It's my favorite kind of music too. He could, the, he could wear a t new T-shirt every day for like the next twenty years. Mm, no, I probably have a hundred <laughs> shirts. <laughs> I don't know about that, Jerry. <laughs> anyway, I, I got, okay. Maybe four months. <laughs> Dude. At least you don't have to do laundry all the time. I do. Just kidding. <laughs> so I, give us. I, I save all my shirts to, like, you know, I'm out. <laughs> That's how I do laundry, too, Jerry. Hey. I get down to the last thing yeah. that I want to wear. Then you're wearing the ratty underwear, and it's like. Uh, yeah, right. That's Why the last straw. Why am I such straw. a lazy piece of shit? You know, <laughs> I know. Like... You say it like it's a bad thing, Nietzsche. No, I'm just kidding. We we all have our. I'm I'm like in that 
that mode where it's like, oh God, I could do laundry. I could do something fabulous. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, give us some some Voodoo Gnosis stuff. Oh wow. Um. So I'll I'll make it quick. I've this was sort of a two part dream I had uh, a couple years back when I had first gotten the Voodoo Gnostic workbook. Um, first section of the Voodoo Gnostic workbook is called uh, Lucky Hoodoo, and um, it's written under a pseudonym called Bekalu Baka, which is a magical name that Michael Bertio uses. But the spirit Bekalu Baka is also featured a good bit in that section of the book. And um, Bekalu Baka is very interesting. He's a very dark, aggressive, petro kind of loa that um, he's he's often seen maybe a little similar to Pazuzu in the sense that he's a protector. He could be seen as a guardian of the uh, the Vudan fate. But by paradox, um, or at least the the way that Bertio presents him in the book, he's similar to Satan in a way, too, because he's kind of good luck. And that's sort of the paradox, um, that this thing that's presented through such horrific imagery is actually uh, be used for good luck or benefit. And uh, I had two really fascinating dreams about Bekalu Baka around the time I got in that book. The first one, um, I was in a field, like a country field with a little wooden house. Funny how we always go back to this setting, uh, except this time it's uh, daytime. And um, I look down in my hand and I have this, the Veve of Bekalu Baka on a piece of paper. And I look up and the field where the house is is surrounded by a forest and the sun is setting and I'm holding this veve looking at it and I'm walking into the forest as the sun is setting and going down. Now that was all there was to that dream. But the very next night I had a different dream where I'm in the woods and it's dark and uh, it's nighttime and there's like a little fire and there's a guy that kind of looks like the way they describe Queequeg and Moby Dick. You know, he has a scalp lock and he's covered in tattoos and, you know, he's very native looking. And he's got a needle and like a little hammer and he's giving me a tattoo on my leg. And it's this giant sleeve that circles around my leg. I'm looking at him tattoo this on my leg and I realize it's a scene, almost kind of like a um, panorama. And it's this monster coming out of the forest and eating children. (laughs) And I thought, whoa. (laughs) It kind of freaked me out a little bit. And I woke up from that and um, I definitely knew that was, uh, you know, to compliment the previous night's dream. (laughs) Oh, yeah. It's funny. It makes me think of that Goya painting to the Kronos Saturnating his children. Oh, for sure. I love that painting, by the way. What a great yeah, amazing. That's a I love that succession of dreams right there. The one and two punch. Sometimes I'll have a sequel to a dream. <laughs> it's never um, you know, I, I can never tell when that's gonna happen, but sometimes it, it will on rare occasions. Do you, and so, I know we're at the two-hour mark, uh, but, so I just want to ask a couple more questions. Do you, 
and this brought it in this whole sequel to that dream which is a whole different pathway but it's something i like to get out so i'm glad you just addressed that what about dreaming true and premonition type dreams or prophetic dreams oh wow um you know i've had a couple uh i might can tell you one story off air but yeah there there has been several little things most of it is usually minor things like things that don't really bear a lot of significance but they do happen uh like okay maybe i i'm glad you brought this back up because this was a dream i had when i was a kid that i completely forgot about um when i was a kid they were building a lot of new houses around my neighborhood and i remember there was a dream where they built a house with a wooden colored fence and um, in an area where there were no houses and it was just woods. And I woke up thinking like, oh, that's not real. That's, I don't know why I dreamed that, whatever. And about a week goes by and they built that house with the exact same fence. And, you know, not that that really had any deep meaning later on down the line, but it actually happened. And that was the part that kind of startled me. And little things like that, of have happened to me throughout my life um i there was only one really big one that uh was uh pretty scary but um yeah we'll we'll talk about that another time maybe see this is this is what's so significant say about the premonitions or the dreaming true and even deja vu is that it yes they are oftentimes oftentimes mundane things but that's not what matters what matters is that we've made a connection right like it's it's like a pathway has been opened up that says oh this is possible it's an unconscious pathway it's 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 way buried into the 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 potential within your inner world of what can happen which is a crack in the wall and all you need is a crack in the wall for the air to escape for oh. the spirit to get out. That's a great <laughs> metaphor. That's a so, great metaphor, by the way. Yeah, right. And so I just think that that's that is important. And and everyone that that tells these stories always start with well, it's just a mundane detail. And it's it's like if we're looking at the world in a whole different way, there is no mundane. Absolutely none. That's true, because even the little things sometimes have deeper meanings. I mean, I've, uh, it, it, I, I probably sound crazy, and this is probably, you know, something that people would look at and uh, see as the argument against magic, but there have been periods of my life where, um, you know, numbers on the backs of license plates or numbers on envelopes in the mail or the song on the radio at a certain time on a certain date at a point in my life would like strike a deep meaning, <laughs> you know, I almost felt like it was trying to tell me something. So I always, um, you know, for me personally, uh, I don't believe in coincidence, but I believe a hundred percent in synchronicity. Right. And the only difference there is it's meaningful coincidence. So exactly. Ascribe meaning to it, which means it's like naming that, which, cannot be once you have the name you have the power yes that's and a you, big you know this magically <laughs> for sure and it's one of those things too with uh with dealing with entities or demons or spirits whatever you want to call them 
wherever the others are is getting the true name because there's a lot of trickery that can be involved in that. But once you can name it, you, once you have the sigil, the true name. <laughs> That's true. That's, um, I, I did a, uh, I think it was last month, I did an interview on Kelly Farmer's channel and uh, she, she mentioned the Ouija board and she mentioned the spirit Zozo. Mm -hmm. And um, I said, you know, the reason he's probably able to possess so many people and mess so many people up is because this is a spirit that nobody had ever really heard of before until maybe two or three years ago on the internet. Mm -hmm. um, and he's kind of become <laughs> like the modern day Bloody Mary or Candyman type of figure because now it's started this chain reaction of kids on the internet playing with Ouija boards to summon this Zozo demon. For me personally, I'm like, fuck that. I'd rather take my chances with Satan or King Paimon or whoever, you know? <laughs> do, do you right. think, so like, uh, for what you're saying, you know, the, the, the Zozo thing, do you think, I know that's an older type of demon. What do you think about, I guess what I'm getting at? <laughs> Long roundabout way here. Um, like Slender Man and Flannel Man and Hat Man, those type of entities that people see you think those are constructed entities like tulpas? It could be very possible. Um, you know, that's, uh, wow, it's another deep question. So many deep questions. <laughs> <laughs> oh it's my not gosh. every night we have a demonologist. Right, absolutely. <laughs> it, you know, it's having a tulpa or an egregore is kind of like having an imaginary friend on steroids that, after you do give him so much belief, I mean, he really is, he or could potentially become as powerful as something out of the Goetia, let's say. Uh, I, it makes me ask about um, H.P. Lovecraft and Cthulhu. I mean, on one hand, we could say, uh, you know, were these Gnostic revelations that Lovecraft received in dreams? They exist um, pre-Lovecraft and just used him as sort of a medium. Or were these things Lovecraft created within his consciousness and put out into the world and, uh, you know, further uh, reinforced by people like Anton LaVey, Michael Aquino, uh, Kenneth Grant, people mm -hmm. like that? Uh, th is that what gave them their life? Uh, I think whether it's uh, potato or potato, um, the objectivity is they're here. <laughs> and they're playing their role. Yes. Well, and then that's that this is the that's the meat of Noxmente too, is the fact that is that exact fact. I mean, there's I don't need to throw other words around it. They're here, they're having it, they're getting fed. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. I think um, you know, even in modern day times with the memes and the plushies and stuff, Cthulhu lives just as strongly now as he did in the nineteen thirties. So <laughs> Oh, if not even more so. More now. so. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, I, I think he's rising. There was even talk about the Deepwater Horizon incident of being some kind of ritual to uh, raise Cthulhu out of the Gulf. Whoa. That's... <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. Can we say juicy? <laughs> juicy. <laughs> Where were you? You know how people always have those bumper stickers, and especially in the South, I'm sure you've seen them, G uh, Jerry. Where are you going to be when Jesus comes back? Where are you going to be when Cthulhu comes back? Billboard, Better hope so. you're not in the Caribbean somewhere. Or he'll eat your ass. But mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a good thing I don't go in the water. All right. Well, <laughs> <It's> a ditto. <laughs> I say we call it. 
So, Sam, I just have loved this. I I love it. This you were and you delivered here at the end of at the end of this little session. You delivered in such a beautiful way for Sawin and the season. Uh, I I really really appreciate the personal content that you shared with us. I know that some of that was difficult. And I think that the right people that need to hear it will find it and get something good out of it. Uh, and this is, of course, only the beginning, but it's been, it was a long time coming, baby, wasn't it? It really was. <laughs> I, mean, um, I know you guys are really booked because um, you've had some very popular guests in the past. And uh, sometimes it takes Jerry even a few months in advance to really fit somebody into your schedule. And, um, you know, I just want to say thank you to both of you. Um, thank you, Niche. Thank you, Jerry, for uh, having me here. You're welcome. Not only for the hundredth episode, but for the Halloween Eve episode, and uh, it's something that I would have done on uh, February the eighth, if or any time, <laughs> if I could. I've wanted yes. to come up here for about a year now, so I, I love this. Well, um, maybe we'll have you back on the obelisk. We could talk more type, go deep on the clip off and the. The tunnel sure. set. I really oh, love to talk my about that. God, that'd be excellent. And I did want to say uh, that I'm so proud that this is our hundredth episode. That it just makes me glow. I love Nox Mente so much, and you know, Jerry and I started it. We got married in a fever, you know, in <laughs> <laughs> Jackson, and so here we are. But was so, it hotter than you. a pepper sprout? <laughs> well, it may have been. <laughs> so here maybe we someday are. we'll actually meet in person yeah really we'll manifest that mm -hmm. so it's it's a true pleasure and i'm glad you're also marking this date with us Dan. oh thank you thank you so much niche i think i just want to say um niche you're absolutely beautiful thank you for always being so supportive and loving jerry you are one of the great old ones, <laughs> horrific and terrible and awesome and all your greatness alike. Thank you for uh, haunting the CW Chanter Chats for all, all this time that I've known you. And uh, thank you for the invite. And maybe I can catch you next time. You're uh, somewhat, you're actually a lot closer to where I live than I thought you were. So maybe we'll have to definitely uh, get together sooner okay. rather than later. Definitely. I'll bring Do my strap on. <laughs> oh, this was behind the scenes <laughs> oh right I forgot. <laughs> it's okay if you forget it i've got one you can buy. all right <laughs> I love, I love thanks everybody for listening and be sure to tune in next week we've got celebrity psychic laura powers gonna be our Ooh, guest I'm excited be pretty interesting hey, i have a permission to plug one uh, thing yeah i was gonna ask that oh yes i said final goodbye oh i'm sorry <laughs> Oh, we forgot. Oh, I we... just want to do it before I forget, because if I don't, then then the the separate crew will uh will bop me on the head with a mallet or something. But um, I also want to say to anybody who watched this and enjoyed it, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And if you want, please go over after this is finished to the Lost Word podcast B with two E's to watch. Davey, Saroth the Mage, Baz, and myself talk about some of the origins of Samhain and Halloween. Yes, this is also why you're on it, and I will be trying to go over there. I'm really thrilled you guys are doing this, by the way. I, you. You're all just fabulous. Where else can people find you, Sam, in the universe? 
Um, you can find me at uh, Shadow Zone Productions on YouTube, which um, I'm actually going to open up a new Shadow Zone Productions YouTube solely for my music, and I'm going to take the one that I have right now and convert it solely into a magical channel. I'll probably change the name of it when I do that, but I don't know what uh, I'll call it. Or if you want to follow me on Twitter, you can follow me at Shadow underscore X underscore Zone. And, uh, there you go. <laughs> yeah, just look for our tweet for this show from the Nox Mente Twitter, and it's got a link to yours in there. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks again, Sam. It was awesome talking to you. Thank you, Nish. Great show. Thank you, listeners. And we'll talk to you next week.